Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin in verse number 9 this morning for our exposition out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, beginning there in verse 9. Verse 9 is a bit of a review of uh, where we left off last week, but we'll read down through uh, verse number 13 this morning. Hebrews 2, beginning there in verse number 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren." saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This portion of Hebrews, as all of God's word is, is a gloriously beautiful portion of scripture. Uh, We looked at how that Christ has already been shown to have superiority over the angels. We've dealt with that over the last few weeks. And we see this wonderful picture in verse 9 of Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and with honor. And we realize that in this crowning of glory and honor, uh, this was not to the exception of his assuming of human nature. Uh, we see that in his humanity, he, he took on the sufferings of humanity. He took on human flesh. He took these things on in order to uh, fulfill that which was the only remedy for man's sin. And that was to go to the cross uh, to suffer, to bleed, and to die for the sins of his people. And so the writer now is going back to and proving now the necessity of all that we've heard and all that we've learned. He goes back and he shows how needful it was for Christ to become a man. Uh, The expression I've been thinking on this week is in verse number 10, uh, that expression, the captain of their salvation. Uh, That is a tremendous picture of what Jesus Christ has done for his own people. He is the captain of their salvation. Uh, it is not uh, one of the leaders. He is not uh, one of uh, those who are in charge. He is the very captain of our salvation. And beginning in verse 9 down through verse number 18, we see really the role of Jesus in two specific and special ways. First of all, we see him in how he reconciled his people to God. And secondly, we see how Jesus, as our great high priest, is able to sympathize with his people. These are beautiful pictures of who Jesus Christ is. We see Jesus. If you see Jesus today, you see the most glorious picture of any who who has ever lived. You see Jesus not only in a general way, but you see him in a specific way that he became sin for you. He became the sacrifice for you. He was your substitute. 
But yet, when we see the references, sometimes we fail to see the entirety of what Jesus really has done. We see this Jesus who's been crowned with glory and honor. It seems contradictory for him to assume the nature of corrupted flesh and to assume the nature of what we all possess. And it says that he, by the grace of God, he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. To taste death is literally to experience death, uh, to go through the veil of death, to walk through it for every man. And verse 10 begins to tell us and unpack the reality of what was taking place. We see Jesus there in verse number 9, and we see that how by the grace of God He became flesh, and through suffering He experienced and He tasted death. But then there's, there's a, a, a hint in verse 16. We didn't read that this morning, but just look at that with me. For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. We'll elaborate more on that next week. But I want you to have in your mind's eye, this Jesus, who's crowned with glory and honor, assumes the nature of sinful man. In verse 10, we really see three references here. We see a reference to, for it became him. We see a reference being given towards us. And we see a reference towards Christ himself. That first reference in verse 10 is it says, it is a reference here to the Father. For it became Him. Folks, when we think about salvation and we think about our own salvation, salvation is an act that is not only of the Father, but it is worthy of the Father. And it demonstrates the characteristic of the nature of God's love. Salvation demonstrates the nature of God's love. We hear the expression, we believe the expression that God is love. Salvation is a great picture of what God's love really is. But this is the same God who is the cause of all things in creation. This is the same God who is doing all things for his own glory and for, according to his own pleasure. Salvation is an act worthy of the Father. Now notice, He is the cause of it. They are for His glory. They are for His good pleasure. But notice it says that, for it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. If you are one of His today, you are one of those sons of glory that has been brought unto Him. You are one of the us. Jesus and we're seeing this beautiful picture that if we are in Christ, we are part of this family that we'll see in just a moment where he's not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, to call us one of his own. Just that, that thought staggers the human mind. This, this Savior crowned with glory and honor, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Don't ever get over that. There is such a beauty in this. There's a beauty in all of these terms of God as our Father. But can you imagine Jesus, the Savior of His people, not ashamed to call us one of His? What a picture this is. 
These sons we know according to Romans 8, verses 28 through 31, and Revelation 5, 9. These sons of glory, the us, we are predestinated to the adoption of children. We've been redeemed by Christ. We're called by the Spirit. And we are heirs, indeed, of a heavenly glory. And we're also told that there are sons of glory called out from every nation, from every kindred, this body of believers. There's something very beautiful about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is really a wonderful picture of who Jesus really is. This body of Christ is made up of people who he's, Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brethren. From every corner of the world, there are people he's not ashamed to call brethren. And yet, in order to transact this, if I can use that expression, he had to become, he had to take on that human nature. He had to become flesh. And we see the third mentioned here is the captain of their salvation, which no doubt we know to make the captain of their salvation. Notice this expression, perfect through sufferings. Why is Jesus called the captain of our salvation? Because folks, he is the author of it. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is our guide. We are not, uh, we are not walking uh, on the same step hand in hand with Jesus. We are, he is leading us, but he's, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. But you understand here that he's, he is the captain. He is called the captain according to the Father's purpose and love. That, that most familiar passage that uh, all of us probably could quote and we should be able to quote John 3.16, that beautiful picture that says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it goes on to say, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Father's purpose. The Father's purpose of love. And because the Father's righteousness and justice, in order for us to be counted as brethren, in order for us to stand before a holy, righteous God, it required that Jesus Christ had to suffer perfectly. Now, it's kind of a strange expression. How does one suffer perfectly? Well, we're told a little bit about this perfect suffering in Romans 3, verses 19 through 26. This gives us this picture of perfect suffering. Perfect suffering means that it has to be according to the law and justice of God. In other words, this is what God Himself required. Perfect suffering was required by God. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being freely, or being justified freely rather, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this, this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The only way that Christ could redeem us was to be in agreement with the attributes of God and He had to suffer perfectly and in a perfect manner. His sufferings were not random. His sufferings were not just the things that came by chance. They were the requirement that God required to be accepting of. We see over in Luke 24, this is an interesting place to find this, but we know that in Luke 24, this is after uh, the resurrection and uh, Jesus has been speaking uh, with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And I would encourage you, if you've never uh, just read that uh, devotionally, read it devotionally, but I would also encourage you, read it in a, in a, a deep way. Study Luke 24 deeply. But as Jesus is talking with these two men, of course, they don't realize they're talking to the risen Lord. They don't realize who he is. And yet he says here in verse number 26, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them, and it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Even Jesus himself referred to his own suffering. And that in order to enter into this glory, Christ had to just not suffer, but he had to suffer perfectly. He had to suffer according to the just and righteousness of God. We think about our redemption and we think about all that it means. And even later on in Luke 24, 46, he says that he says unto the disciples, he said, thus it is written and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name, in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. We see this beautiful picture of Christ suffering perfectly. Back in our text, we move into verse 11. And we see this this picture of sanctification. 
And it, the, the, the expressions that are used here for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It is The meaning here is that Christ, who is the one who sanctifies, those he sanctifies have one Father, and they stand in relationship to Christ as his brethren. This is a relationship that Christ himself actually acknowledges. Uh, in Matthew 12, uh, we see Jesus acknowledge this relationship. Again, uh, I hope these are not... Uh, these are not boring concepts to you. Uh, these are glorious things that Jesus is claiming. I claim them. I'm not ashamed to call them my brethren. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with them. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto them, who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. In John 20, verse 17, we see a similar uh, agreement with this relationship. John 20, verse 17 Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Folks, do you realize today the relationship that we have in Christ Jesus today? I don't think we think on this enough. I don't think we think on the beauty of the perfect Christ who suffered perfectly, not ashamed to call us brethren. And to claim us and to speak to us and in the inspired Word of God to actually say, I claim them, they're mine, I'm not ashamed of them. Folks, we are in fact, the beauty of Christ is that we, we all have one Father. We are one family. We are one body. We're under one covenant. And though God, the supreme God who is over all things, who created all things, is not ashamed to own you. Folks, I'll be honest. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to own myself some days. Do you all understand what I'm saying? I'm, a, I'm ashamed to claim my own self because I know what I'm capable of and I know who I am. I couldn't get over this today. I couldn't get over this this week of thinking, how does he, how would, why would he own me? And we are always left with the human question, does he really know me? Because if he knew me, he certainly wouldn't claim me as his own and he certainly wouldn't call me brethren. Notice he doesn't say, I call them a distant relative. We all know what that means, right? Yes, they're my distant relative. And you're, what you're doing is you're separating yourself saying, yes, they're part of me, but I don't lump me in with them. He didn't say they're distant relatives. He said they're brethren. You know that little word one with relation to the body of Christ 
is really a beautiful word. You know, the world, I think, has got its eye set up and mind set up the reality that if we can divide the body of Christ, if we can somehow break these things up into all these divisions and uh, make it all about everybody's preferences and folks, we lose sight of the beauty of the one body in Christ. Listen, I, I don't, I can guarantee you, you're going to talk to other believers who are not all going to have exactly the same view on things that we'll call the preference matters. There are things we can't compromise on, but the beauty of oneness in Christ, not just the oneness of each other, but the oneness in Christ is the beauty of the captain of salvation that Jesus is talking about here. And he says this is only possible because of his perfect suffering. It was only because his suffering was acceptable to a holy God that you're called brethren. I love this because nowhere does it say anything that you did was a part of this. Nowhere does it say you did this to gain access into the family. You did this to become part of my family. No, he said Jesus did all of this. The very creator of the world. Imagine this God who is over all, has created all, not ashamed to own us. And then look at verses 12 and 13. We see this, uh, this beauty continue. And these, this is a quote that's coming out of Psalm 22. We'll turn there in just a moment. But I want you to notice the words here as the writer continues to uh, illustrate uh, what this absolutely means. He said, saying, I will declare thy name into my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Now, these words are quoted from Psalm 22, which there's no doubt if you study Psalm 22, you come to the conclusion that that is one of the messianic psalms. That is a psalm about Christ. And specifically what's being quoted is verse 22 of Psalm 22. The psalmist writes these words. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will i praise thee this is that text that goes along with what's happened in verse number 11 of hebrews 2 when he said he's not ashamed to call them brethren i will declare thy name in the midst of the congregation the second half of that particular quote in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. That comes from Isaiah chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, we'll see that Isaiah uses this expression. So the writer of Hebrews is in fact uh, quoting the Old Testament promises and scripture as he's demonstrating this relationship. Isaiah 8 verses 17 and 18. He says, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. What this is all telling us, and this is prophesying about, that when Christ takes these children in, what he is in fact doing is he is taking his people as a gift directly from the Father. Do you realize that you are a gift, not in of yourselves, but you are a gift from the Father unto the Son? 
All that the Father has given me, Jesus says. You were directly given by the Father to Jesus Christ. We see the background of that in John 17 too. Lots of scripture this morning because these are all, uh, all the scriptures that are backing up exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. John 17, this is the uh, this intercessory prayer of our Lord. In verse 1, he said, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life. Watch this. To as many as thou hast given him. Do you know who are those who come unto Christ? Those that the Father gave to him. It's a hard doctrine. It's one that I tried to, I tried to rationalize away. For many years, I tried to say, well, he, that's not what he really means. He's got to mean something else. No, all that come to Christ are all that the Father gave to him. So you're really caught in a quandary here. Did Jesus, was Jesus Christ, in fact, given every single person in the world? Because if he was, then every single person in the world would come to him. Every single person in the world doesn't come to him. Everyone that comes to Christ that he's not ashamed to call brethren, that he sanctifies and says, I will declare them as being mine, are all the result of a gift of the Father. Now, again, I, don't want, I have trouble owning myself. I certainly don't consider myself a gift. I'm the gift in my humanity you don't want. Because in our humanity, none of this is taking place. We're not a gift in our humanity. We are the gift of the Father that's been given to the Son, and that through the perfect suffering of the Son, we are now made part of His family into one body that leads Him to say, I'm not ashamed to call them my brethren. These are the ones the Father gave to me. What a beautiful picture. And yet, all of this had to be done perfectly. Christ receives the children as a gift from his father. He goes on and he says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Of course, Jesus in verse 5 there of John 17 was speaking of the time when he would go back and be back at the right hand of the Father. Christ receives us as a gift of the Father, but also as a purchase that was paid for by His blood. Perfect suffering. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, teaches us and shows us that this purchase that was paid for us was paid by His blood. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That purchase price was His shed blood. Those that are belong to Christ, He receives them from the Spirit as they've been called, and they came to Him in faith. 
Now, we understand something here that since those who He redeems are of a human nature, then Christ also became a man. And by becoming a man, He assumed a human nature like ours. That means that He was, in fact, 100% man and 100% God. It's important that I say that repeatedly, and you hear me say that often, because that's where we start to run into problems. If we begin to say that one of these natures was lessened or one of these natures was removed, that he was no longer God, he was no longer man, he was 100% man, 100% God. And in this assumption of flesh and blood, he also became subject to temptations. He became subject to infirmities. He took on this flesh, But remember, Christ also took his nature from a virgin and yet was without sin. There was no sin in him. We are under the sentence of death because of sin. In order to take this judgment and sentence upon himself, he had to do that in order to redeem us. That's what 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 21 teaches us about he who knew no sin became sin for us. What a beautiful picture it is. What a picture it is to think about how Christ had to become a man because we know that since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Christ had to become a man. A man who would actually could die by the, by the fact Jesus Christ did die. He didn't just go into a, a sleep. He actually died in that humanity. He died. He had to die under the wrath and the judgment of sin. God himself cannot die, but God in the flesh could experience death, right? God can't die, but God, but God in the flesh experienced death. Remember this, Satan, of course, cannot kill. He cannot destroy except by permission. So why is it said in Scripture that he is said to have the power of death? Because Satan was the very one who introduced sin which brought forth death. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he mentions that sin is the sting of death. And sin is the power of Satan's kingdom. But yet Christ, with his death, destroyed the power and the force of death for all believers. It takes us to John 11, verses 25 through 26. Again, a beautiful passage. It reminds us of this glory of removing this thing of death. John 11, verses 25 and 26. Of course, this is at the the death of, of Lazarus. And Jesus uses these words. He says unto Martha, He says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Folks, you realize today that without hope in Christ today, let me just conclude with these thoughts. Without hope in Christ today, there is no more fearful experience than death. The most fearful thing a person faces is death if they do not have hope in Christ. 
The believer does not fear death today because their hope is in Christ. Their hope is in what Jesus Christ has claimed. He says that they are mine. I'm not ashamed to own them. I'm not ashamed to call them my brethren. I truly believe that we are God's. We belong to Him. He owns us. He claimed us. Christ didn't just die to make salvation possible. He actually accomplished our salvation on the cross. This is a settled matter. If you are in Christ today, you have been given to Christ by the Father. But if you sit here today, and you sit here today without hope in Christ, the most fearful thing a man or woman ever is going to face is death because there's no hope. How can a person today who has no hope of pardon, has no hope of forgiveness, has no promise of eternal life, how can a man or a woman not look at death without fear? You would have to be fearful today. But you can have hope in Christ today. You can repent of your sin and believe in Christ alone as the only remedy for my condition. I believe that he was, he's perfect in his suffering. And what Jesus Christ did is he did in fact take my place. To be without hope today is a fearful, fearful experience. But you understand that without Christ... Even Romans 8 teaches us without Christ, there is nowhere to turn because even the law of God, you can't find hope there either. I beg of you today to consider your standing. Consider where you are. Consider, is Christ your all in all? Have I repented of my sin and have I believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed on Christ alone. Folks, I think that the more we understand about our standing in Christ, the more burdened and the more diligent we ought to be about proclaiming and preaching this gospel. It's a natural response to what's happened to us. If we're truly, if he's not ashamed to call us brethren, how could we be ashamed to name the name of Christ in every area of our life? Sadly, we probably still, because of our sin nature, we willfully hide the name of Christ from certain people because we don't want them to think poorly of us. Can you get this in your mind today that Jesus Christ at no time, even when we're in the midst of sin, does He disown us? I know I do things that I'm worthy, if He was able, I'm worthy of Him disowning me and cutting off the relationship entirely. And yet, he's not ashamed to call me brethren. Why would we ever be ashamed of he who has given us all of our hope? Why would we be ashamed to speak the name of Christ at every opportunity? Why would we be ashamed to not tell somebody else about who he is and what he's done for us? I hope we never get over the reality Hope we never get over the reality of what it really means to be in Christ today and to actually be able to say, He's the captain of my salvation. And that I am in Christ. Do you know today if you're in Christ? You don't leave here today with uncertainty. You either know or you don't know 
you know you're in Christ or you know I'm outside of the body of Christ. I'm outside. Run to Christ. I'm not trying to be silly. Run. Don't walk. Don't crawl. Run. He will never turn away any who is seeking after Him, who comes to Him. He's not going to say, nope, not for you. All that the Father has given will come. Folks, that's my great hope today. That's my hope I have for loved ones who are still remain in what appears to be an unregenerate state. If they've been given by the Father, they're coming to Him. It may not be right now, but they're coming. You say, that doesn't seem very comforting. It's a lot more comforting than relying on a dead man raising himself from the grave and bringing himself to God. Because that's what a man has to do. Apart from God, he's got to raise himself from the dead. He can't do that. If he's opened your eyes, he's unstopped your ears, he's made you willing to believe. Don't be afraid to give God all the credit and all the glory for your salvation. He's the captain of it. It's not 99% him and 1% you. It's 100% God. All of it. And if you're in Christ today, you are a person who should be most grateful. I hope this will encourage and help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this Word this morning. And Lord, we are grateful that You do not rely on us to save a man's soul. You've just given us this, this, this solemn responsibility to be proclaimers of this glorious Gospel. Lord, I pray for every single person who has called on the name of Christ. They have repented and they have believed in Christ alone. Oh, how I pray that these, these truths that we've been reminded of today would just grow more precious in our minds. That we would not be able to just brush them off easily, but that we would be just taken back again at the beauty of Christ not being ashamed to call us brethren and being the captain of our salvation. But Father, I also know that within any group of people, whether here or on live stream, whatever the case is, there may be individuals who have yet to repent and believe. And Lord, according to your sovereign will and your purposes and your plan, Lord, if, if it be your will to open their eyes and open their ears, that they would gloriously be saved. Father, I pray that we would, we would be witnesses to that. Even this very hour, this very day, if it's according to your will. Lord, help us not to be ashamed of the name of Christ. Help us not to be ashamed to claim the name of God. And may we rejoice in our salvation. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Let's, con let's conclude with the hymn on page 208. We'll stand as we'll sing this our closing hymn. 208, My Ransom.